My senior year of high school, a TV crew came to my small hometown in Tennessee to make a documentary for PBS. They were documenting the resettlement of a group of refugees from the country of Somalia. A decades-long civil war had been taking place there where hundreds of thousands had been killed and millions displaced from their homes. So the government relocated a few dozen Somalians to our small Tennessee town, and I'm guessing you can imagine some of what happened next. The documentary presented two opposing reactions to these refugees. On, On one side, you had the negative reaction. A reporter at our town newspaper wrote a series of articles pushing rumors about the Somalian people and why their presence in our community was causing problems. The comment section on the newspaper website turned into a horrible message board, people saying that this group was unwelcome and even that they should be sent back. However, there was another side. There was a positive side. There were people in our community who welcomed their new neighbors and sought to help them learn English and American customs. And there were churches who ministered to them. And a lot of people learned how to have compassion and love for people from a different culture. And that included me. Initially, I was exposed to the negative side and adopted some of those thoughts. At the grocery store where I worked, we had several Somalian women who shopped there, and other customers did not tell us, did not hesitate to tell us what they had heard about them. We were told they were dangerous. They had connections to terrorist groups in Somalia, and that the women carried weapons under their dresses. We were told that their headscarves meant they were Muslims who wanted to force Sharia law on our community. We were told they were gross, that they didn't use bathrooms like we do or follow good hygiene. We were told they were rude and demanding and they didn't respect our American values. We were told the government had put them in our community to push an agenda. But you know what I don't recall being told? I don't recall being told about the horrible conditions these people were fleeing from in Somalia. I don't remember hearing that many of them saw their loved ones die of violence or starvation and they were that they were one of the few who could make it out alive. God changed my heart after two encounters I had in high school. One was at the grocery store. I was pushing in shopping carts, you know, we call them buggies, but to you, they're shopping carts. Uh, one afternoon, we were I was bringing those in when a Somalian woman approached me in the parking lot, and she sounded upset. She was speaking Somali, which I took as sounding really aggressive. So my first thought was, yep, just like they said, rude, demanding, doesn't even speak English. But then I realized after a minute that she was actually asking me for help. She was motioning me to her car. So I walked over, and after a moment, I realized that her key was stuck in the ignition and that she couldn't get it out. It was this really old, beat-up car, and after a moment, I sat in the driver's seat fiddling with it. I pulled the key out, and she was so grateful. I I just remember it was such a simple little encounter, but it dawned on me in that moment that she wasn't being rude. She was afraid. And for the first time, I thought about what she had been through, how she had witnessed the destruction of her home and country, how she had been transported to a totally foreign place where she didn't know the language, and how even here she may not feel welcome. Can you just stop for a minute and think with me about how unbelievably hard that would be? 
The second encounter I had was on my high school soccer team. We had one Somalian player who was a grade below me. And as I got to know him, we, we became friends, and I realized that just about everything I thought and had assumed about him was wrong. His life had been infinitely harder than mine, but at the core, we were both just teenage boys who liked soccer. Those two encounters, amongst many others since then, have changed my heart when it comes to the topic of refugees and immigrants. And listen, I know the conversation in America on this topic is extraordinarily complicated. It's been heavily politicized for a long time, and it's really divided people. There are really big questions to be answered like, how do we secure our nation's border while also dealing humanely with those who come here seeking asylum? What's the best solution for the over 11 million undocumented immigrants in our country, many of those who are children? How many refugees should our country allow in each year, and from which country should we allow them to come from? What steps or requirements should there be for someone to immigrate and become a citizen, and how do we make sure that process is fair? Look, in a church this size, we come from different backgrounds and experiences, and so we're going to answer those questions in different ways. Some of us may have never even considered those questions. Listen, that's okay. I hope you've learned in this series that it's okay to disagree. Things are not always black and white. Some questions don't have simple answers. We should be able to discuss complicated, heavy things without losing our cool or breaking our fellowship. But today I'm not going to spend my time trying to answer those sorts of questions. And I'm not going to solve our nation's problems in this sermon. That's not my calling, and frankly, I'm not smart enough to do that. Again, I'm not saying those questions and conversations aren't important. As Christians, we can and should think about these things from a Christian worldview. And those of us in positions of influence can do things and should, like run for office and lobby politically for certain solutions. But I want to focus this morning on how we think about this issue on a personal level. As we consider refugees and immigrants in our own community and around the world, how do we think about those people through the lens of the image of God? That's what this series is all about. Imago Dei means the image of God. And we're looking at the person who is said to be the perfect image of God, Jesus Christ. And we're looking at the things in his life, the things he did, the things he said, and how they can help us to better reflect his image today. So let's ask our three key questions we've asked every week of this series. Here's the first. Number one, what did Jesus teach? And to answer this question, I want to start out really broad and kind of work our way in. Uh, Let's look at the Gospel of Matthew and a word that Jesus used many times. It's the word righteousness. You may remember when we went through the book of Romans, we talked about that word and the way Paul used it. Paul used righteousness to speak of having a right standing with God. So he said righteousness is not something we earn. Rather, it's something we receive through Jesus. But Matthew uses the word from a little bit of a different angle. Let me show you what I mean. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst For righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jump down to Matthew 5, verse 20. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Look at Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then lastly, Matthew 6, verse 33. He said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew's using righteousness to show how those who belong to the kingdom of God live differently. Paul focuses on how we receive righteousness. Jesus focuses, Matthew recording it, on how we live out righteousness. Jesus wanted his followers to see that being a part of his kingdom meant living in a particular way, conforming to a particular standard. So here's the answer to our first question. Jesus taught the righteousness of God's kingdom. We've tried really hard in this series to confine ourselves to what Jesus did and said in the Gospels during his earthly ministry. But it's impossible to accurately understand his ministry without going to the Old Testament. Jesus said he came to fulfill the Old Testament. So many of the things he said find their grounding in the Old Testament. And that's particularly true of the kingdom of God and righteousness. In the Old Testament, Israel was God's kingdom on earth. We saw that in our series through Exodus. And through the law that God gave them on Mount Sinai, God called his people to live out that righteousness. What exactly did that look like? Well, there was a lot that we saw. There were vertical commands in how they should worship and deal with God, but we said there were also horizontal commands in how they treated other people. Living out righteousness in God's kingdom wasn't just about the spiritual stuff, but it also encompassed the way they treated others. And for our topic today, that was especially clear for how they treated those who were in need. There were three categories of people in particular that God talked about over and over again in the Old Testament. The poor, the widow and the orphan, and the sojourner. So in the Old Testament, to do righteousness was to care for the sojourner. And we see that connection in this verse right here. It will be on the screen, Jeremiah 22, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. We see right there, God calls people to actually do justice and righteousness. And that includes caring for the poor, the one who's been robbed, the fatherless and the widow, and the resident alien. That, that word resident alien is another translation for the word sojourner. Here's a few other verses you'll see on the screen about caring for the sojourner. Leviticus 19. It says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 27 says, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Psalm 146 says, The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Zechariah 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, 
the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. There are a bunch of others we could look at where sojourners were called to be included in Jewish festivals. Israel's commanded to leave some food in their fields to feed them. It is abundantly clear. Just as God had a special heart for the poor and the widow and the orphan, he also had a heart for the sojourner. But who exactly was that? Who was a sojourner in the nation of Israel? And what would we call that person today? That word sojourner simply means one who passes through. So in relation to the Old Testament Israelites, it referred to a person who was not ethnically Jewish, but who was living among God's people. Someone who had left their home for any number of reasons to live in a place that was not their home. Today, we have different terms for people depending on their situation. For example, did you know right now we have 110 million people around the world who are what is called displaced people? 110 million people, they have been forced, not by choice, but forced to flee their homes due to war, famine, persecution, or some other crisis. Within that category of displaced people, you have those who are internally displaced, meaning they've left their homes but have not crossed an international border into another country. You have asylum seekers, those who have crossed an international border but are currently waiting on a decision on whether or not they can stay and qualify as a refugee. And then you have refugees, those who qualify as needing asylum and have been approved by the government to stay in another country and receive help. The top countries that refugees are fleeing from today are coming from places like Syria, Ukraine, and Afghanistan. And the countries that have accepted the most refugees in the world today are countries like Turkey, Iran, and Colombia. You you may not realize the United States isn't even in the top ten. So it's, it's important we understand when we think about this, this is really a global crisis happening around the world where millions of people are forced from their homes in fear for their lives. The other term we hear is the word immigrant. Generally speaking, an immigrant is someone who chooses to leave their home to settle in another country. That may be for work or school or family or a variety of reasons, and they might immigrate legally following the legal process of the country they're going to, or we know, illegally. So which of these terms is closest to the Bible's term of sojourner? Well, that's a hard question to answer, to be honest. We're dealing with very different cultural context and, and global times. But it seems to me that the term sojourner in the Bible would have included all of the above. There were people, for example, there were people like Abraham or Ruth who were considered sojourners who would be more like an immigrant today. They chose to travel and to live in a place that was not their home. Then there were people like Joseph's brothers in Genesis who would be more like refugees today. They fled their home and settled in Egypt due to a famine. So while there's not an exact correlation between sojourners in the Bible and sojourners today, it's important to see that those verses from the Old Testament that we just read, they don't come with qualifications. Like I don't think God called Israel to first ask why the sojourner was in their land before they were to love them. 
They weren't to assess whether that person was deserving of their help before they helped them. God simply says, love them, help them, have compassion on them. And to walk in righteousness today requires us to do the same. So whether a refugee from Ukraine or an immigrant from Nigeria or an undocumented person here illegally, we treat all people as bearing the image of God. We do not first ask what country they are from or their reason for being here. We do not first ask for their papers before we decide whether or not they deserve our compassion and care. And again, I'm not talking about laws here. I'm not talking border security. Those things are important. Laws and policies and, yes, even borders bring order and justice to society. They have their place. On a national level, we have to have those conversations. But I'm talking about the way you and me and we think of, talk about, and treat other human beings on a personal level. The righteousness of God calls us to treat others with fairness and dignity and compassion. And as Jesus taught, that righteousness is a hallmark of the kingdom of God. Let's ask our second question this morning. Number two, what did Jesus do? Several times already in this series, we've talked about how Jesus identified with people in his human experience. He, he willingly chose to lower himself, humble himself, and experience all the suffering of mankind. For example, we said he chose to become a preborn infant conceived in the womb. We said that he chose to be born to young, poor parents and to live a life with little. And here's another one we, we often miss. Here's the point. Jesus chose the experience of a sojourner. Flip with me over to Matthew chapter 2. This is the story of the birth of Jesus. Uh, we see that Herod, who was a leader at the time, is on the hunt for the Messiah. And he, he finds out that the wise men are looking for him. And he says, hey, guys, when you find him, let me know. Well, the wise men, they find Jesus. They visit him. but well, they go home a different way. They trick Herod. And Herod is furious. He, he, so what he does is he has all the baby boys in Bethlehem, two and younger, killed. So he can try and take out the Messiah. But somehow Jesus makes it out alive. How does that happen? Well, here's what happened. Look at Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Think about this for a second. God is sovereign. Jesus chose the situation he entered into. He chose to be born to Mary and Joseph. He chose to be born in this time and this place. It wasn't an accident. He knew that Herod would attempt to kill him. He knew that as a young boy, he'd have to flee for his life. And that's the experience he chose. If you want to call it a refugee, a displaced person, a sojourner, whatever, Jesus, as a young boy, had to flee to a foreign region out of fear of persecution, just as many are doing around the world today. Why would he have done that? Why would he have chosen that? 
Well, this is just another aspect of the life of suffering Jesus experienced. When he chose to take on humanity, he chose to experience all the pain and difficulty it had to offer so that he could fully relate to us as his people, so that he could be our representative in our place. That meant Jesus was the most complete and perfect human being who's ever lived, and yet he suffered immensely. From the manger to the cross, Jesus suffered on our behalf. He faced rejection, hunger, ridicule, sorrow, pain. His closest friends abandoned him and his own siblings called him crazy. His religious leaders killed him and he died as a criminal on a cross, bearing God's wrath for your sin. Jesus willingly chose that experience for you. Another one of Jesus' key teachings, he identified himself with the person in need, including the sojourner. That's Matthew chapter 25, if you want to flip there. It's a famous parable we looked at recently on the least of these. Jesus in the parable is kind of dividing up those who will go into eternal life, those who won't. And his evidence for judging them is based on their helping those who are in need. We think about the least of these. We often think about those who are poor, hungry, sick. But notice who else Jesus includes, Matthew 25. Verses 35 to 40. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer him, them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And that word stranger is similar to the Old Testament word for sojourner. It's a foreigner, an outsider. And Jesus is again identifying himself with that person. His point is that when you help a sojourner, the one who's living somewhere far from home, you are serving Jesus. And that should impact the way we think about this group of people. But we can take this even further. Because not only is Jesus identified as a sojourner, so are his followers. And this goes back to the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 23, verse 4. Listen to how Abraham described himself. He said, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. From the very beginning, God's people were a sojourning people. The nation of Israel is, as a whole is called sojourners from their time in Egypt. God tells them this in Exodus 23. He says, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. King David even identified himself as a sojourner. Psalm 39, he's praying. He says, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. The writer of Hebrews, when he sums up all the Old Testament saints, he says this about them in Hebrews 11. He says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And then in the New Testament, Jesus' followers were called sojourners. They traveled from place to place taking the gospel. Jesus himself said he had no place to lay his head. Peter, when he wrote to Christians, he said this, 1 Peter 2, he said, Beloved, I urge you as 
sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church, he described them like this in Philippians 3. He said, but our citizenship, Christians, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So guys, do you see this? The, the whole idea of sojourning, of living in a foreign land, is an entire theme of the Bible. And yes, it becomes a spiritual theme to describe the way we're in the world, but not of the world. But my point is that we, of all people, should understand what it's like to live in a place that is not our home. Jesus understood that more than anyone, having left heaven to come to earth. And we understand it too as citizens of a greater kingdom living here in a fallen world. So don't you think this should inform the way we think of and treat refugees and immigrants? Don't you think this should elicit some sort of understanding and compassion from us toward people? To help the refugee and to serve the immigrant should be the natural work of a follower of Jesus. Here's the third and last question this morning. Number three, what did Jesus command? And this one's simple, simple answer. Jesus commanded us to go to the nations. We're all familiar with the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And for a long time, Christians have viewed the solution of the Great Commission as foreign missionary work. And of course, that's vital. It's very important. We need people to go to the unreached places of, of the world with the gospel. We should fund and pray and send. But one of the greatest developments for American Christians in the 21st century is that the nations are coming to us. No longer do you need a passport or a plane ticket to do mission work. We have people right here in our own city, in our own neighborhoods, from some of the least reached places on the planet. I saw this stat recently. This is incredible. It said that after India and China... The United States is home to the third largest number of unreached people groups in the world. Do you know what an unreached people group is? An unreached people is a group among which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize without outside assistance. They have so few Christians in their culture that the gospel cannot spread there without help. Many of those groups are found in either very remote and dangerous places or places completely closed to Christian ministry. But by God's providence, with things like technology and airline travel, and yes, even the refugee crisis, God is sovereignly orchestrating the bringing of many of those groups here. I was reminded of this one day in the park a few years ago. Amber and I met a family that had just that month immigrated from Algeria. And I was stunned because it's obviously really far away, but I was also stunned because I knew that Algeria is one of the most difficult and dangerous places in the world to be a Christian. 
They are 0.3% Christian, and those who convert from Islam are often persecuted. And here was a family from Algeria sitting on a park bench less than one mile from my house in Olathe, Kansas. The Johnson County is becoming more and more diverse all the time. And, and for many of us Americans, do you know how we respond? With fear. We fear change. Like I once did as a young man, we believe all the stereotypes. We see immigrants and refugees speaking a different language, wearing a different clothing, and we grieve the loss of some idealized culture. I don't think I have to tell you by this point, that's not a Christian response. As a follower of Jesus, when I see an immigrant family move in on my street, when I see classmates of my children who are from different countries and cultures, when I go into a business and I interact with someone who speaks English as a second language, first and foremost, I rejoice. Man, I rejoice that God is bringing the nations to us. I think of the gospel impact we can have right here in Olathe, how we can see Revelation 7 with people from every tribe and nation and tongue gathered right here in our church around the throne. But I want to make clear, I don't just see immigrants and refugees as a project or as a potential convert. The whole point of this series is that we see them first and foremost as image bearers made by God. So as we go to them with the gospel, let's make sure we also go to them with the love of the gospel and the compassion of the gospel. Let's take the time to get to know them, hear their story, and understand their culture. And most importantly, to make them feel welcome. I've told you before about our friends at the donut shop just down the road. They're a young couple from Cambodia, moved here a few years ago, another largely unreached nation. And when we built a friendship with them, we invited them over to our house for dinner. I'll never forget how grateful they were towards us. They told us, they said, you are the first Americans to ever invite us into your home. They lived here for years, and we've been their first American friends. And I don't say that to position myself as a hero. I'm just a guy who really likes donuts, okay? <laughs> but I want you to see, this is what I want you to see. It really is that simple, Guys, the debate on refugees and immigrants from a political standpoint is very complicated. And we can discuss policies and debate ideas, but on the personal level, it's really not that complicated. Get to know them. Invite them into your home. Listen, learn, show them the love of Jesus, and share with them the love of Jesus, for they bear the same image as you. Would you bow with me in prayer?